It's good to see each and every one of you here this morning. As Pastor Rick mentioned, we are continuing in our Overwhelm series. Um, it's a series through the minor prophets, that the minor prophets, not necessarily minor because of their ministries or that they didn't do much, and so we put them to the side. No, it's just because of the amount of material that, they, that is in the uh, in the Old Testament compared to prophets like Jeremiah or Isaiah or Ezekiel. So a few weeks ago, we started with a look at, uh, right at the close of our uh, global outreach, we looked at Jonah and then we moved on to uh, uh, Hosea, Joel, and Habakkuk. And this, today, we move on to the book of Amos. It was a Tuesday afternoon, cold, crisp, fall morning. I was... um, Headed out of class, this was when I was back in, in Bible college back in Missouri, and I was headed out of class heading to chapel. We have chapel there every day, Monday through Friday, and so as, as custom is, you know, heading down, had a lot on my mind for all the discussions we had that morning or whatever it was. And as I headed down, walking to the chapel, I see something that was unusual, something that is not usually there. I see a cardboard box right on the lawn and right on the grass, there's a cardboard box. But what's interesting about that cardboard box, it was just not a regular box, it was serving as a tent. It was serving as a tent for a homeless person who decided to call the lawn home that morning. And so we looked at it, I looked at it and went, huh, that's interesting. And I kept walking. I walked into the chapel the whole time thinking, I hope, he, I hope he realizes that security will come by any time and tell him to leave. And so we, I walk in, grab, grab a seat, get ready for chapel. So the worship team comes on. Does, they do a phenomenal job. We worship. And then whatever the announcements or whatever was taken care of. And our pastor, the campus pastor, Pastor Baker, comes up. And he's like, all right, the speaker for today just called and said, Unfortunately, he's running a few minutes late, and so while we, while we wait for him, why don't we have some of the students? Again, keep in mind, we're all young ministers. We're in training and such, and so he said, why don't, why don't we have a few ministers come up, and I want you to share for just a minute about what God is doing in your life or what, if he's spoken to you or some, whatever is going on. I want you to come and share with the student body. And so, sure, we had a few students line up, but before that, I noticed something. Right before this, the service was about to start, I noticed one of my friends had walked in, and right in tow was this homeless person. And so they grabbed a seat, and as Pastor Baker calls everyone up, guess who's in the line with all these students? The homeless guy. And so he's, he's standing there, the students come in, they share what, what they have to, and they leave, and now it's this gentleman's turn. And Pastor Baker, using a little discernment, said maybe this is not the pr- best place for him. Said, why don't, you, why don't you grab a seat? We'll come get back to you. Stomped his feet, and he said, no, this is my turn. I am going to speak. Pushed back from the, the, the pastor. He said, are, are you sure, brother? We can always have something for you later. No, I get to speak now. Little did we know, that was the speaker for the day. Oh. You see, what he had done as he started, he started with these verses. Right out of the book of Amos, he said, Seek good and not evil, that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you as you have said. Hate evil and love good, and establish justice in the gate. As young ministers that morning, we learned an important lesson. You see, that morning, he had snuck onto campus a few minutes early, put on his, his 
homeless person costume, put on the makeup and everything, got the box, and he was, he was on that lawn. And as he started speaking, he asked, how many of you saw me? How many of you noticed me before you walked in? And he said, of the few hundred students that walked by him that morning, just one received him, invited him into chapel, and invited him to lunch. He said, that's great, but I have a question for you. And here's the question I want to pose to us to today. As you're here to worship, he asked us, you're here, I hear the beautiful music, I hear the, the, all of you singing, you're energetic, you're just, you're sold out. And as you're worshiping, have you done right by God while you worship, having just ignored one of his creation? Have you done right by God in worship when you haven't cared for the one who was hurting? And that morning, that taught us a big lesson. And so in the book of Amos today, as we move in, just a little bit of the background here. Amos was a prophet out of the southern province of, or the southern kingdom. At this point, if you've been tracking along with us, you know that Israel was one kingdom that got divided into two. Now there's the southern kingdom and there's the northern kingdom. The southern, south is called Judah and the north is called Israel. And Amos is this little prophet from a little town called Tekoa, and he is called to go to the north. Amos doesn't have a huge pedigree that he can boast about. He's not from a line of prophets. He's not a prophet by trade. He is not a priest by any means. He was a simple farmer. He was a sheep breeder. And here's God calling this man who has... No big, uh, he has no big resume, but instead God calls him and he sends him to the north and he says, go prophesy. Now the people that he's going to, it's a little interesting. You see, Amos was preaching or prophesying during the time of Jeroboam, uh, or uh, Rehoboam II. Jeroboam II, excuse me. What's interesting about this king was during his time, he was not particularly godly, but he was a shrewd king. He was able to procure peace. He was able to, um, there were no wars during his time. There was economic prosperity. There was just peace. There was, it, it was good. The land seemed to be doing well. And so the question you and I are probably asking is, when in a time when everything seems to be good, in a time when everyone seems to be doing well, everyone's happy, no enemies are attacking, what's the need for a prophet? Why does he have to come in into a serene picture like what we see in, in the northern kingdom at this point? While it seemed like a peaceful and economically comfortable time in Israel, it was also a time of rampant corruption and moral decay. Amos arrives in Israel and immediately he dives into prophecy against the people for their spiritual condition they find themselves in. He does not differentiate based on their origin or their status. The main thrust of Amos' prophecy is this, that the day of the Lord is coming. Judgment is coming upon you. The day of the Lord is darkness and not light for those who have loved darkness. The creator and the ruler of all things will roar out of Zion and, uh, and devour all his enemies. So prepare to meet your God. Coincidentally, he comes in during a feast. So if you can imagine with me, Thanksgiving meals prepared, everyone's having a great time, 
and one of, one of your family members stands up or someone, some stranger stands up and says, prepare to meet your God, how would he or she be received? Amos was immediately rejected by the people. You see, in a time where everything seemed to be doing well, Amos is called to pronounce judgment on the people. To a land that's enjoying tranquility, they're enjoying prosperity, God announces impending judgment. Why? For that first, we have to take a look at who he was talking to. So in Amos chapter 4, verse 1, this is what we read. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan. That's a good way to start. <laughs> who are on the mountains of uh, Samaria, who op- the, oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. Now, if you've been tracking with me, you know he's not talking to literal cows here. Instead, he's calling the women of that town, you cows. It's always a great way to get attention. Always a great way to get people to just tune you out. But here, there is a reason why Amos goes in. He is bold. He is, he is decided. He knows exactly who he is speaking to. We've talked about the history of Israel a little bit. You see, at this time, they're enjoying such wealth. It's often said that since the time of Solomon, Israel never had much wealth as they did at that moment. They were enjoying prosperity like never before. But they were enjoying prosperity on the backs of other people. They had gotten rich. The wealthy had gotten rich. The wealthy had gotten good. The upper crust of society at that point, they were thinking things are awesome. God has blessed us. We have more money than we know what to do with. As a matter of fact, in Amos chapter 3, he talks about how they've built summer homes and winter homes. They've so much money. We have two so that in the right climate, we're always in the right climate. In chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, this is what he reads. And he's talking about the people again. He says, because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. A man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down besides every altar on garments taken in pledge. And in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. They were leading wealthy, extravagant lives. But their extravagance did not lead to freedom. It instead led to oppression. We don't know exactly what kind of oppression and how this happened, but perhaps the demands of the needs of the household to maintain the opulent high, the lifestyle that they were, they were driving their husbands to go out, cut corners in their business, or to levy higher taxes, or to do whatever it took to succeed. Perhaps it was just a case of everyone's doing it, so why not I? We have to have more and more money. So they go out. They're taking money. They're extorting They're taking bribes. The courtrooms are unjust. Whatever it might be, there is this constant spending, overspending, overspending, and it's fueling oppression over oppression over oppression. Now, thankfully, these days we don't have that problem, right? It's all too familiar in this day. Amos accuses Israel by telling them that the wealthy had become addicted to a lifetime of luxury, but all the while... They ignore the poor, sell them into debt slavery, 
and even deny them legal recourse. You see, Israel's spirituality was corrupted by a false sense of security and economic prosperity. As a matter of fact, their false worship was influenced by their wealth and their affluence. Amos continues by prophesying against them for their religious hypocrisy. In chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, this is where we read, Come to Bethel and transgress, to Gilgal and multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a, th- offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of that which is leavened, and proclaim free will offerings. Publish them, for so you love to do, O people of Israel, declares the Lord. You see here, the Lord is not commending them for their religious attitudes, for their religious works. The Israelites, they faithfully attended all religious gatherings and gave up their tithes and offerings. So what is wrong? Through Amos, God is sarcastically acknowledging that they go to Bethel and Gilgal, two of the two holy places. But by going there, they make it unholy. They offer their sacrifices every morning. They tithe faithfully. They offer sacrifices thanksgiving and proclaim freeval offerings. But you see, these were all actions but behind the actions were corrupted intentions. The intent was corrupted. When the, when the sacrifice demanded or the offering demanded that they bring in unleavened bread, they brought in what was conven- convenient, leavened bread. When the free will offering was just an offering between them and God, they published it. They would go to these holy places and they would commit sin. You might even look at their, on the surface level and look at them and say, man, look at how religious they are. Look at how committed and devoted they are. But the Lord has something to say about their devotion, has something to say about their faithful or their worship. In chapter 5, he goes on to say in verses 21 and 23, I hate, I despise your feasts. And I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offering of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs and the melody of your harps, and I will not listen. Some tough words. It's like these people are going to worship with everything that they've got, and God said, I am turning a deaf ear. I am choosing to look away. It's almost like this morning you've made your way to Mount Hope. This morning you woke up, you did everything that you had to do, and you got here. You're here to worship. You're here to sing. You're here to lift your hands. You're here to do whatever the Lord has called you to do. And he's saying, you know what? It doesn't matter. I, I'm, I'm not listening. It's not acceptable to me. You see, Amos looks at their looks at the Israelites and tells them that their worship was a scam. There was no genuineness about it. It was all for show. But again, why would God completely reject their worship? Were the Israelites wrong in the devotion to God? The answer is this. Even though they pro- proclaimed that they were Israelites, even though they did the right Israelite things, they have forsaken God. And while they were still worshiping, they were worshiping falsely. They were offering up false worship. 
God tells them that even though they worship, their worship was a sham. In place of unleavened bread, they're offering leavened. Free will offering, they just do exactly the opposite of what God has demanded. And instead, when it's explicitly said, you shall have no other gods, they turn to the gods of convenience, the gods of the nations, the gods like Anat and Baal and Asherah, because these were the gods who could do what they needed in the moment. Anat would give them, would give them a victory in battle. Baal would uh, give them good crops. Asherah would, give them good, uh, would provide them children. And so they decided to choose, run after these gods all the while worshiping Yahweh falsely. Today in the 21st century, you may be hard-pressed to find someone who worship in high places of Anit or Baal or Asherah. But do we not forsake the worship of the true God for the sake of our ambitions, our jobs, our families even? God's charge against the Israelites was that they already forsook him. Amos is a devastating book for people who give token attention through their gatherings, through their songs, but whose hearts, not here, but they're engaged by their business, their family, their favorite sports team, their favorite TV show. You may be here physically, but your heart is engaged in something else. If your outward acts of worship are a mask to give you some respectability while your heart is really attached to the world and to your own comfort, then God hates your worship and despises your gatherings, is what Amos says. He's looking for commitment. He's looking for a wholehearted worship. And when it's divided, he no longer is interested. You see, Israel has forsaken God. They chose to worship the way they wanted. They chose to worship who they wanted. But the charge against them is not over. Let's continue as we look into the book of Amos. One Sunday, a lady went to church, and she was immensely pleased when she heard that the preacher had taken on the topic of sin. She gleamed with excitement when he denounced robbing and homosexuality. When he decried human trafficking and the sex trade, he, she cried out, preach it. When he spoke against the nasty politicians, she turned to her neighbor and said, the preacher's on fire today. And when he moved on to the topic of gossip, she turned back to the neighbor and said, well, he just needs to mind his own business. You see, today as a society, we take on the task of social justice. We take on the task of social restoration. We want to fix our society. But more often than not, we want to fix the problem that we think is a problem with somebody else and not inside us. In the church, we're called to look inward and not at someone else. We are called to examine our own hearts before we take on somebody else's problems. As we continue in chapter 5, verse 14 through 15, this is what we read. Seek good and not evil that you may live, so that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you. 
As you have said, hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. I have a question for you. What is true justice? I don't know what comes to your mind the moment I say the word justice. You see, it's loaded. There are different emotions that we attach to the word justice. We have different experiences that we've attached to it. Maybe you're thinking human rights. Maybe you're thinking civil rights. Maybe you're thinking a courtroom scene. Maybe you're thinking of police officers enforcing the law. There are a lot that comes to mind when we hear that word justice. We may think of social projects like building homes and providing water. Maybe you're passionate about the word, and it brings to mind the many injustices you see around you and in the world, and you feel this calling to go take it on and to fix it. Or maybe you hear the word, and you know that it's, it doesn't mean what it's supposed to mean. When you hear the word social justice, you may think of Christ denying liberals who see Jesus as a mere moral teacher and his death as a mere example of love which undermines the biblical gospel. You may think of social justice and see what the media portrays and what the, what the world around us portrays and say, wait, that does not make sense. No matter what your perspective on justice, Amos has a lot to say, so I say let's just dive in. But if we're going to talk about justice, we, kinda, we have to define it first. In his book, Generous Justice, this is how Tim Keller puts it. Justice is giving humans their due as people in the image of God. That's it. Simple, simple, simply put. Justice is giving humans their due as people in the image of God. Genesis 1:26. this is what we read. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. When God created man, he created man in his own image. He deposited who he is. He deposited his image into man. Every person sitting here today, within the sound of my voice, you have been created. You were born with the image of God. No matter what your circumstance, no matter what your, what your life has brought you through, no matter what your prospects look like, this is true of you, that you have the image of God on you. And so justice is simply this. When God created you, he created you with certain rights. He created, with, he created you with certain dignity. And justice is providing that. Justice is you providing me that courtesy as me returning that courtesy to you. Here's a simple example. Imagine a tourist comes into town. She's from outside the U.S., so she's exploring. She gets to the Mount Vernon Estates in Virginia. She looks at it and goes, hmm, interesting. She asks this question, why do you people put so much value, have so much pride in this little estate when you look around and you see estates that are three times or much bigger, much grander looking than this? And here's your answer. See, the Mount Vernon Estates 
is the home of George Washington. Because he calls it home, because he called it home, we take pride in it. It doesn't matter if the foundation is cracking. It doesn't matter if the gutters or the, uh, are falling off. It doesn't matter if the house is in ruins. Because he calls it home, we take pride in it. Because it was precious to him. And because we revere him, it's precious to us. And so, we must trust, we must, excuse me, we must treasure each and every human being as a way of showing due respect for the majesty of their owner and creator. God has put his image in each of you. It doesn't look, it doesn't matter if it's bruised or battered. God has put his image on you. It doesn't matter what circumstances you went through, what your parenting, what, what parenting you experienced. It doesn't matter what education you have. God has put his image on you. He gives his rights and dignity to all human beings. He gives them purpose and a direction for life. Anytime, at any time when one of us denies a, se- a person the rights or the dignity that God has given them, we create an injustice. And here's a, here's a definition of injustice that I really love, the International Justice Mission. They define injustice this way. Injustice happens is what happens when someone uses their power to take from someone else the good things God intended for them. Their life, their liberty, their dignity, or the fruit of their love or their labor. The moment... You deny someone any one of these things, there's an injustice that has been created. See, in Amos' day, this is exactly what the Israelites did. The wealth that some in society enjoyed it was mined off of the backs of the poor. The poor were made to live in servitude so they would pay off the debts. Many were even sold in slavery. The wealthy Israelites would take advantage of their brothers and sisters while coming into the holy places to worship God. It would burden them unnecessarily with high interest rates and exorbitant taxes while bringing their own offerings into the house of God. They would imprison the poor, and when they could not pay off their debts, they would be sold into slavery, and all the while they're enjoying their seasons in multiple homes. And God is saying, this is repulsive to me. You may see that within our own culture today. People who live completely opposite to their beliefs. Christians who come in on Sundays, worship, listen to the word, tithe, and maybe even donate a few of their hours to the church. But during the week, you would have no idea that they were Christians. In their business, they use oppressive tactics towards their employees and customers. They exploit one another's weaknesses to advance their own careers. They false advertise. They provide a a slipshod workmanship at $30 an hour when a fair wage is not given, when there is plenty of fine print in every contract, when an agreement is not always honored, whenever greed replaces justice, whenever money triumphs over mercy, whenever the judicial system becomes a pawn of power and privilege used to oppress the very people it's designed to protect, there is injustice. We're not, we're called to not tolerate it within the church. But so often it is. We may decry it, we decry most of these sins on a Sunday, but practice some of them during the week 
We may frequent businesses that exploit minorities and children. We may buy products that exploit foreign workers and find legal loopholes to avoid benefiting their communities. If we're truly honest, there is some level of hypocrisy in each of us. Amos is saying this, that if we practice these things, then we come with our tithes and offerings, with our best outfits on, with our singing, with our best voices. God looks at this worship and condemns it. It's a hard message to listen to. But here Amos is saying, seek God. Seek justice for your own sake as well. There's a life that comes when we seek justice. Jesus says it this way. He says, what good is it if you gain the whole world but lose your soul? No, seek justice. That's where we discover life. Seek me. Seek good. Establish justice in your community. Establish justice in your family and live. That's what the scriptures are saying. He continues, hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. Just a quick history lesson. So in Israel and during the cities of that time, the gate was a place of prominence. The gate was where the traders came in. The gate were where the people went to buy their whatever it was, whatever uh, food or item that they wanted to. The gate was where political discourse happened. The gate was where judgments were made. But the gate was also where people were cheated. The gate was also where people were, were abused and oppressed. The gate were where slaves were sold. And, and Amos is looking at the people and saying, hate evil, do good, love good, and have established justice within the gate. What are the gates today? The gates are not in here. The gates are at your workplaces. The gates are at your homes. The gates are where you congregate, where you get together with your friends, where you, where you find, where you do life. In those places is justice to be found. Or does Amos look at you and say, hate evil and pursue justice? If you're a manager, do you manage your work? Do you manage your people with justice? The hours people put in for work, the hours people keep, their compensation, is it just? If you're a salesperson, what is it that you sell? Does your product, whatever it may be, enhance justice or does it detract from it? The way that goods are produced and, or are they produced justly or unjustly? How does this all fit together? If you're in the legal profession, if you're a lawyer or a judge or somehow associated with that whole world, how do you uphold godly justice in the midst of all that? If you're in the political world, how do you pursue godly justice there? See, this is what Amos is calling the people to. He's saying establish justice in the gates. Don't just all get together and sing nice songs about justice. He's saying put your words into action. Don't just say, do. All the stuff that we're doing here is good. But if it fails to translate into real justice, it's, it's repulsive to God. You see, our worship 
is closely tied to the, the lives that we lead. The worship that God desires leads to justice. If we are worshiping him the right way, we will automatically lean towards justice. If we, are, if we have a proper understanding of him, we will become like him. When we are drawn to love God, we are compelled to love our neighbor. If we're going to worship God, we are to do it on his terms and in the way he chooses. The worship that God desires leads to justice. Let me say that again. The worship that God desires leads to justice. In Isaiah 58, verses 6 through 10, this is what we read. And Isaiah is also a contemporary of Amos, and he's, he's also writing, and he's writing to a people who are facing the same exact issues. And he's talking about a fast. It's not... Is not this the fast that I choose? To lose the bonds of wickedness and to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your, your, your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking of wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desires of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom shall be as noonday. If you're thinking that's the Old Testament, this is what James has to say. James chapter 1, verses 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. This is what the Bible has to say. Moses, he tells the people of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 18 through 19, he defends the cause of the fatherless and the widows, and he loves the foreigner residing among you. Give them food and clothing, and you are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. Love the orphan. Love the widow. Love the foreigner. I think we can all relate it to today. Our God is concerned with the plight of the fatherless, the widow, and the foreigner. And if he is, we also ought to be. You see, worship that God honors is where, he, where we as his children, we seek justice for the oppressed, for the downtrodden. We take care of the orphan and the widow. Worship that God is pleased with involves taking in the foreigner and pleading their case. The worship that God desires leads to justice. Worship without justice is repulsive to God. When our social interactions are not impacted by our, by our worship, we are living hollow, repulsive lives. The worship that God desires leads to justice. But what about those of us who, who do those good things, who our lives are marked by good? That's our passion. We want to go out there and make the, change the world. What role does our pursuit of justice play? You see, the justice that God desires must lead back to worship. The worship that God desires leads to worship. I'm sorry, the worship that God desires leads to justice. But the justice that God desires leads back to worship. Those two are tied together at the hip. They cannot be separated. 
In our society today, especially in the last few years, we've seen an uptick in the pursuit of justice for the wrongs done in the past, whether it's national or political, whether it's social, whether it's cultural, whether it's a movement online or a movement on the streets. Whatever this may be, what is it grounded on? Is it grounded on worship? You see, these justice movements, if they're not grounded in the morality found in scriptures, becomes merely witch hunts for the purpose of retaliation from the victim to the perpetrator. You hurt me, so I have to hurt you back. We pursue justice only because it is grounded in the word of God. God pursues us because of his justice, and so we pursue that same justice. Justice is not an end to itself. It is a means of communicating the gospel. You see, when Jesus came, when God came in search for you, there was justice that had to be met. And justice demanded that a price had to be paid. And Jesus pays that price. That justice is not an end to itself. Instead, it's a means of us reconciling with him. As part of our our justice, we have worship. We are reconciled to him because he was a just God. He didn't choose to destroy us, but instead, he chose to reconcile us. When we pursue justice, it should lead to worship. If we're truly moved by the gospel to serve those God has called us to, we will be drawn to worship him. See, let me remind you again, those two aspects of Amos' prophecy to the Israelites, they're inseparable. The worship that God desires leads to justice. And the justice that God desires leads to worship. They are two pieces of the puzzle. Today, if you're here this morning and maybe there's something that's stuck out to you, maybe there's something that the Holy Spirit's dealing with in your own heart, Maybe you've come into, the, into, into this place. You've come in as the worship team comes up. I'm going to have them come up. And as we're sitting here, ex- let's examine our hearts. Maybe you've come in and you say, I'm here to worship, but there's something that I have to fix back home. I'm here to worship, but there's something that I have to confess. I'm here to worship and I'm here with my gifts. I'm here with my, with my voice. I'm here to give God the glory. But there's something that I need to fix. This is what the Lord says. Worship that is not accompanied by justice. Worship that is not brought into the real life, into the daily, in the form of justice. He says, I don't want to hear it. That's what Amos has to tell the people of Israel. And today, this morning, he's looking at each of us. And he's saying, if you're here to worship, but there's something that you have to fix. There's something at your work that's oppressive to somebody else. Maybe it's a business practice. Maybe it's, a, it's, it's cheating a customer out of something. Maybe it's... something that you said to a family member. Maybe it's the poor person that you walked past right into chapel to worship and ignored that poor fellow. Whatever it may be, he's looking at us and saying, that worship will not be heard. 
And so this morning, as we close, let's take a moment. Let's take a moment to examine our own hearts. Let's take a moment to look in and say, God, there's something that I have to fix. And I can't do it on my own. Holy Spirit, would you step in? Holy Spirit, would you deal with the, with the things in my heart? Would you deal with the circumstances that I have to deal with? Would you do your work? So this morning, as we close, or this afternoon as we close, the altars are open. I'm going to call the, the elders and our pastors to come forward, and they're going to be on either side of this platform. If there is something that you want to take to the Lord in prayer, I would welcome you to come pray. Surrender it to the Lord. Confess it to the Lord. Let Him take it on. Let Him deal with it. Would you bow your heads in prayer with me? Father, we thank you. Lord, these are tough words for us to listen to. But we thank you for the Holy Spirit that deals with each of us. Lord, even as Amos speaks to the Israelites, he's speaking to us too. And I pray that each person in this room, as they deal with what's in their hearts, I pray that you would, you would speak and you would transform us. Speak to us. Help us to worship you in spirit and in truth. Help us to worship you in justice. Help us to worship you so that our worship goes out into the world and draws people to you through the way we live, through the way we talk, through the way we do, through the way we live. Lord, we ask all this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ.